we are starting chapter 33. And chapter 33 is part of the joy theme still that was started in chapter 26. Chapter 26 brought us to the awareness that we must have joy in serving Hashem. Joy is what gives us vigor. Joy is what gives us strength. Joy is what gives us the stamina to overcome all obstacles. And we move through the chapters discussing different issues that might get to our joy. And the Altarab addressed them and he showed us why some of these are not even reasons to be sad, but actually reasons to be happy. And then in chapter 31, the Altarab said, yes, there are reasons to be sad and down because of the animal soul. But here's the key to joy. The key to joy is take the focus, the locus of your personality, pull it away from the ego and from the animal soul, and instead identify with the divine soul. And when we come to the divine soul, then there's always a reason to be happy because when we throw ourselves into Torah and to mitzvot, then what happens is our divine soul is constantly being reunited with Hashem. And when she's united with Hashem, what a great joy. So on the account of the divine soul in chapter 31, there's always a reason to be happy. But when you think about the animal soul, no, not really a reason to be happy. The way to be happy is by escaping the animal soul. The way to be happy is by running away, by ignoring it, saying, okay, yeah, it's true. There's reasons to be sad because of the animal soul. The animal soul is a spiritual burden. But I'm not even going to worry about it right now. You know where I'm putting myself? I'm putting myself to take joy in the joy of the divine soul. And she's always happy every time I do Torah and mitzvahs. And so therefore, when she's happy, I'm happy. There's no joy like her joy, and that's where I'm taking joy. In chapter 32, we took a little detour, which was still on the continuation of the theme, but when you live as a soul person, you can come to fulfill the mitzvah of Ahavas Yisrael, love your fellow as yourself. Now we're back to joy. And the amazing novelty of this chapter is that it takes through our entire personality. This chapter is not just, okay, take joy in the divine soul and ignore the animal soul. This chapter grabs the animal soul too and makes you happy even with your animal soul. So this is a whole new level of joy. And there's a story of an old venerable chassid. He was actually a great grandson of the second Chabad Rebbe, the Mittler Rebbe, which makes him a great, great, great grandson of the author of the Tanya. His name was Rabbi Zalman Schneerson. He was a prominent chassid, a venerable old man, and in his old age, he was not allowed to consume any alcohol, not even wine. So it was Simchas Torah. The chassidim were for bringing before the hakafas, before making their rounds with the Torah. And he said, it's Simchas Torah, we need to be happy. He couldn't take wine. So he calls over a young yeshiva student named Shraga, and he says, we need to be happy. Read chapter 33 in Tanya for me. So the student opens up the Tanya, starts to read chapter 33, and suddenly Reb Zalman screams at him, okay, enough, enough! And he starts running around the table, dancing as if he were a sprightly young lad. His children were trying to stop him. They thought it was dangerous. And this was not because of alcohol. This was because he was hearing the words of chapter 33 in Tanya. So this is that chapter, chapter 33. It is the chapter of joy and... One of the paradigm shifts that we reach in this chapter is why is a person unhappy? So the general consensus out there, the normal worldview is people are happy when they have a sense of self-satisfaction. 
You feel good about yourself. You feel like you're accomplishing your goals. You feel like you have good qualities. You're a worthy person. I hear that word a lot recently. Worthy. That's a great reason to be happy. This chapter says, no, 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 no. You want to know what's the real reason to be happy? Not when you have a sense of self. It's not when you're feeling yourself. It's when you're not feeling yourself. The greatest joy comes from closeness to Hashem. And when you're in that space, you don't feel yourself. The word that's used for this mindset is called bittel, which means nullification. And people hear this word and it has a bad rap because they don't understand what it means. They hear this word bittel and they think it means self-crushing. And they say, I don't want to do bittel. I don't want to crush myself. Bittel is not self-crushing. It's self-nullification, meaning getting your ego out of the way so that the divine shines through you. When a person is crushing themselves, when they're hard on themselves and they're calling themselves names and they're not feeling good about themselves, it sounds like they're being non-egotistical, right? It sounds like they're being humble. Actually, no. Whether they're complimenting themselves or they're getting down on themselves, Essentially, it's all about self, and that's ego. They're being ego-centered. They're being self-centered. They're having a strong sense of self, even if they feel bad about themselves. Bittel is not about being feeling bad about yourself. Bittel is about letting go of your sense of self as an individual apart from Hashem, and instead recognizing yourself as a channel for the divine that's here to shine His light in this world and and let that light shine through you. And there's a story that the previous Rebbe used to tell often, and that is that they were Hasidim who were just in Russia, who were leaving off our bring in a Hasidic gathering, and they were all fired up with this idea of Bittel. And uh officer stops them in the middle of the night and he says, Who goes there? And one of the Hasidim answered, Bittel idiot, Bittel is going there. After his whole session, he couldn't even call himself by his name. He called himself Bittel. This is actually the most joyous feeling. It's a non-sense of self. It's a feeling of Hashem. The absolute ultimate joy is feeling Hashem. And there's a story of the Rebbe. There was this Hasid, a cipher. His name was Rebbe Yeshayahu Hakayan Matlin. He came from the Soviet Union, and he served as the Rebbe's personal cipher. He used to check the Rebbe's tefillin and mezuzahs. He didn't want to take money from the he didn't want to take money from the Rebbe, and the Rebbe insisted, saying, "I'd like to lay tefillin that are entirely my own, and I insist on paying." And the Rebbe used to even send him shalachmanes some years, because the Rebbe used to send shalachmanes to a kaihen, to a levi, and to Yisrael. And some years he was the kaihen. The Rebbe called him an emissary guter friend, a truly good friend. So one year, Rebbe Yeshayahu comes to the Rebbe on a pressing matter. And he asked the Rebbe for his time. And he said, I'm sorry, he apologized. I'm sorry for taking the Rebbe's time. And the Rebbe stopped him. And the Rebbe said, it's not my time. The time belongs to Hashem. And that's exactly what it is. It's not my time. It all belongs to Hashem. And this is the most freeing feeling. It's not about self-worth. It's not about self-centeredness. It's about channeling something that's beyond us. When we're all about self, we're very limited. We're very small. Even if we're the grandest person on planet Earth, 
how grand is a mortal human being? But when we become channels of the divine, we're infinite. We have no end. Because we're expressing an essence that's deeper than ourself, that is our truest self. So we're going to explore this amazing, the amazing concepts of this chapter. And here we go, chapter 33. In chapter 31, the Alter Rebbe discussed various means of arousing joy to counteract the sadness brought on by contemplation of one's spiritual failings. Chapter 33 resumes this discussion, meaning resumes the discussion of joy, not of spiritual failings. Yet another means of leading one's soul to true joy. So in addition to what we learned in chapter 31, here's another way. And here is. Especially at those specific times when one finds it necessary to purify his soul and illuminate it with a gladness of heart. So there are times that people are going through life, they're doing everything right, they're following the Torah, they're keeping the mitzvot, they're doing whatever is demanded of them, and yet they're feeling fatigued. They're feeling worn down. They just feel a certain listlessness and lack of energy. They need a special boost. Alter says, you need a special boost? I'm going to tell you something. Here's a way to get a new kind of vigor for your soul. And when he says for your soul over here, Hasidic scholars point out that he means the animal soul. This is a joy that's going to talk even to the animal soul. Because in chapter 31, again, we talked about ignoring the animal soul, escaping the animal soul. And even though at the very end of the chapter, we even talked about elevating the animal soul, the joy for elevating the animal soul is not the joy of the animal soul. It's the joy of the divine soul who's elevating the animal soul. But here is going to be a joy that becomes so tangible, that becomes so real, that becomes absorbed in our physical brain, in our mental implements, so that it speaks to us as physical beings, speaks even to the animal soul. Alter Rebbe now begins to explain this method. Azai ya'amik let him think deeply and picture in his intellect and understanding the subject of God's true unity. Okay, let's first talk about God's true unity and then we're going to backtrack and speak about think deeply and picture. What does it mean God's true unity? Probably the most famous verse in the Torah are the words, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Here, O Israel, God is our Lord, God is one. Jewish people say this in prayer at least twice a day, morning and evening. This is the last word Jews say as they let their soul go back to its maker. What does it mean God is one? In a very simple sense, it means there's only one God. There's not another authority. There's not another power. There's only one God. And the Ramam explains when we say God is one, it means that he is a simple essence that's indivisible. We don't even know this kind of indivisibility in our world. It's the most simple oneness that's not like a body made up of parts. It's just absolute oneness. And this is what it means God is one. The Baal Shem Tev came along and taught us from deep mystical teachings that when we say God is one, we need to keep in mind the verse from the Torah. That says, Ata ki Hashem hua elokim ein 
od malvado. Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people, you are shown to know that God is God. There is nothing else besides him. When we say that God is one, we don't just mean he's the only authority, he's the only power. We mean he is the only reality. He is the only existence. Nothing else exists besides for him. Now you're going to say, one second, <laughs> you're going to tell me nothing exists besides for God. I see people, I see trees, I see animals, I see a whole world out there. What does that mean? That nothing else exists besides for Hashem. So the Alter Rebbe is going to explain this to us by bringing us two concepts. And he tells us that you have, it's not enough to just like kind of read through it peripher- peripherally. You need to, he says, Ya'amik machshavta, think deeply about this. And then he says, furthermore, picture this in your intellect. Because even if you're going to understand it, you'll read the concepts, you'll get it. It's not enough to just get it. You want it to resonate with you. You want it to get into your bones. You want it to be something that's so genuine, so real, that really becomes part and parcel of the way you feel, the way you think, the way you view the world. Okay, so you're going to tell me uh, there's nothing else besides Hashem. And there is no other reality besides for him. That's really contrary to our perception. We sense ourselves. We don't sense ourselves as being just nothing besides for in Hashem. So you're going to say maybe the world isn't real. Maybe it's just all an illusion. But there's a very simple reason why we cannot say that. I was reading a story by Rabbi Yossi Jacobson speaking about when he was a little boy. He was once at a farbrengen of the Rebbe. And the Rebbe was speaking about uh, Rashi. He was really delving into it, analyzing it. It was too much for the little boy's mind. He was like staring at the ceiling. And then in the middle of the talk, the Rebbe is suddenly looking at him and asking a question pointing to him. And he asks, from where do you know that there's a world? And the little boy is quiet. He doesn't answer. And the Rebbe answers for him. And he says, so the child answers. Because the Torah says, Bereshis bara elekim es hashemayim ve'es ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That's how I know the universe exists. So you're going to say, you know, I'm getting really into this. I'm feeling this meditation. The world is nothing. There's nothing else besides God. There's no such thing as a world. It's an illusion. Hey, stop for a second. Look in the Torah. That's not what the Torah says. The Torah says God created heaven and earth. There were six days of creation. Hashem did indeed create the world. So how are we going to say there's nothing else besides Hashem? And the Alter Rebbe is going to say, he's going to bring us ideas to help us understand that even though truly the world was created, Nevertheless, there's only one existence, and that's Hashem. So this is the first concept to take into consideration. Let him consider how he permeates all worlds, both upper and lower. So the first concept to consider is that God fills all worlds, higher and lower. Now, This is the lowest of all worlds. It's the physical world. When we say higher and lower in terms of spiritual worlds, we mean that there's higher spiritual worlds, lower spiritual worlds, not in terms of space. Space doesn't exist in higher realms. 
Space is an idea, higher and lower is an idea of greater and smaller. This is what the Rambam explains in Hilchas Yisei De Hatayra, that when we say like, you know, one angel is greater than the other. Think about when you say one scholar is greater than the other. Does it mean he's larger than his friend? It means he's more wise. He's of higher quality. So here we're talking about higher and lower worlds. God fills them all. No matter how great they are, no matter how small they are, God fills all worlds. This is concept number one. God fills all worlds. Just as the soul pervades the body, thereby animating it, so does God permeate all the worlds. This indwelling refers to the divine life force, which adapts itself to each individual creation's capacity to receive it. And for this reason, the Altar Rebbe here distinguishes between upper and lower worlds. In the upper, more spiritual worlds, the revelation of this life force is greater since their capacity is greater. And here, the interpretation from the Lessons in Tanya is referencing an idea that we learned a few times, and this is the idea of Memale Kol Almin, fills all worlds. When we refer to the energy of God that fills all worlds, this means a light that is suited to the vessels of the recipient, so that there is a different kind of light, a different kind of quality of light, depending on the quality of the created being of the world. And because this light has a relationship with the worlds and with the created beings, it is called, it fills them because they sense it. And additional, when we're speaking about higher and lower worlds, it makes sense to reference this light of the light that fills all worlds because there's a different quality of light that goes to higher worlds than there goes to lower worlds. There's another two levels that the Altar Rebbe is going to reference here. And the, the other levels are Saivev Ka'amen, and that is that he surrounds all worlds. That means that there is a divine life energy that transcends all of the worlds, and therefore it is equal in each of the worlds. That means that the same amount of this light that the higher worlds get, exactly that same amount the lower worlds get. None of them have any significance in the relation to this light, and they all get it equally. But because they cannot sense it, it is beyond them, even though it permeates them, even though this is what brings them into existence, it is called encompassing. It is as though it surrounds them because they can't grasp it. But it's not that it's not within them. In fact, this is their very life force. Then he's going to reference a third level. And he says, Kula kame kilachashiv. Everything is as nothing in front of him. And this is when we talk about the essence of Hashem. Because even if we're going to say, this transcendent light is so great, it's like it encompasses all the worlds. Who has the relationship with it? At the end of the day, it is what brings creation into existence. And therefore, there has to be some level of relationship. But when we think of the essence of Hashem, nothing has any significance compared to His essence. Everything is totally valueless. So these are three levels, fills all worlds, encompasses all worlds, and nothing has any significance at all. Now, the Rebbe, in speaking about this, says that the simple reading of the Tanya in this chapter is not that way. The Alter Rebbe is just bringing an idea home. The Alter Rebbe is telling us, I want you to realize that Hashem fills everywhere. He fills the higher worlds, and He even fills this earth that we are on. But it is not about this levels of one after another, not because that's not here in the chapter, because that's not the point the Alter Rebbe is bringing home. So there are different ways of interpreting it. And the simple way is just to read it so that we understand that Hashem fills everywhere. There is no space devoid of Him. 
Va'afilu milay kol ha'aretz halezu huk vaide yisbarech. Let him consider how even this world is filled with his glory. That means we're thinking about, yeah, Hashem is in the higher world. We think of the highest world with angels and supernal beings. And of course, Hashem fills there. But the other was saying, you know what I want you to consider? That Hashem fills this very physical world. He fills higher worlds. He fills lower worlds. Even this very earth is totally full of his glory. The Navi Yeshaya says, The whole earth is filled with his glory. Okay? So I said there's going to be one concept and then another concept. This is concept one. Concept one is Hashem fills all space. As the Zohar says, Lace asar panemine. There is no space devoid of him. There's no physical space devoid of him. There's no spiritual space devoid of him. There's no conceptual space devoid of him. Hashem pervades every idea, every which thing there is in the universe. Hashem fills it all. There is nothing outside of him. Concept number one. Now let's go to concept number two. Let me just backtrack and read the notes that they have. So when we said, consider how this world is even filled with his glory, this refers to the divine life force which encompasses all the worlds and which animates them as if from above without adapting itself to the particular nature of each created being so that even this physical world is filled with his glory. Okay, and now for concept number two, v'chula kame kilachashiv mamish. And now everything is of no reality whatsoever in his presence. Okay. So let's put these two ideas together. Concept number one, Hashem fills everything, everywhere, every space. No place is devoid of him. Concept number two, nothing is of any significance whatsoever in his presence. Do you know what happens when you put those two concepts together? It comes out that there is nothing else besides Hashem. Why? Because... When you have something of infinitely great value and then you have something of worthless, insignificant value, no value at all, you take the insignificant thing and it becomes contained within the larger thing, the infinite thing, that insignificant thing loses its existence. It has no existence at all. And here is an analogy sourced in the teachings of the Arizal. It's an imperfect analogy necessarily, and I'll explain why, but just to bring the idea home. So you have a drop of water, okay? A tiny little drop of water. It's a drop. It has an existence. Now take that tiny little drop and throw it into the ocean. Is the drop in the ocean? Yeah, drop is in the ocean. Are you going to say the drop has an existence in the ocean? You will not. You're going to look at the ocean and you're going to see the vast ocean. You will not see a tiny little drop. It is going to be now part of the ocean. It has lost its identity as being part of the ocean. So now it is not existence for itself. This is to illustrate the concept that when you have tiny, something tiny, minuscule, insignificant, you put it into something huge and vast and tremendous and infinite. It's there maybe, but it doesn't have an existence. It loses its existence. Now, the Alter Rebbe himself is going to bring two analogies, which will be more perfect, but more abstract. This really brings it home, because ultimately, if you're going to take a drop, and you're going to say, one second, this drop does have significance compared to the ocean, because what is the ocean? 
The ocean is made up of many, many drops. That's very different than the reality we're talking about because Hashem transcends everything. He is a simple oneness. He's not made up of us. Everything that exists is just totally insignificant compared to Him. So if we think about this and we bring it home to the point that we relate to it, it comes out that there's really nothing else besides Hashem. Because what did we say? Every space is filled with Him. That means right here, right now, is filled with Hashem. And if nothing has significance compared to Him, and everything is contained within Him, is there any other existence besides for Him? There is no existence besides for Hashem. There is just one existence, and that is Hashem. So the author is going to continue to explain this, and he's going to bring his own analogies. Vahu levadehu ba'alyanim v'sachtainim mamish k'may shahaya levade kaidem sheishes yemei bereishes. He is one alone in the upper and lower world realms, just as he was alone prior to the six days of creation, when nothing existed apart from God. So too now, when all the worlds have come into being, he still is one alone, since all of creation is not before him, as will be explained further. Okay, so obviously Hashem was one alone before the creation of the worlds. Guess what? Nothing changed. Hashem is one alone, even after all the worlds have been created. Figam b'makayim hazeh shenivra b'aylam hazeh. Even in the very place where this world, the heaven, the earth, and all their hosts was created, he alone then filled this space. Now, we're going to say what space? Before space was created, what space? We're saying he filled the space even before he created space. So true, there was no space. But Kabbalah speaks about a divine level called Mekayim Ha'ilam, the place of the world. It is from there that the worlds are sourced. It is a divine level, though. And obviously, when you see just the divine, you know there's only the divine. Hashem was one alone before the worlds were created. It was obvious that he was one alone. Now that he created heaven and earth and all their oaths, he still is one alone. Lagam Ata Kane. The same is true now, for he is one alone without any change whatsoever. You're going to say, what are you talking about? I see a world. Come on. But when we take these two concepts together, that when something small and insignificant is contained in something large and, in, and infinite, it loses its existence. It has no separate existence. That's exactly how it is right now. For in relation to him, the very existence of all created beings is utterly nullified so that from his perspective, as it were, everything remains just as it was prior to creation. And they have a story of a chassid of the Alter Rebbe. His name was Benjamin Kletzker. And he was a lumber merchant. And one time he was adding his accounts. And when it came to the sum total, instead of writing a numerical figure, he wrote, there's nothing else besides Hashem. 
And he did it not as a stunt. He did it because that it was like a slip, like a Freudian slip. <laughs> he wrote Einide Milvade instead of writing a numerical figure. And his friend chastised him and he said, listen, there's a time for everything. You're doing your math. You got to focus on math. You need to write numbers. And he said, I don't understand. When somebody is praying, it's normal that their mind wanders or they think about business. Is it okay that when I'm doing business, my mind could wander and I could remember about Hashem? So this is somebody who really took this to heart. And at the end of the day, he's doing math. But what screams out of his mind, what screams out of his mind is Ein Eid Milvade. There's nothing else besides for him. And the author is now going to bring more abstract analogy to help us get this concept. And before we get into it, let's remember what we learned in chapters 4 and 20 about the soul and its garments. The soul, the essence of the soul, is really indescribable. It's really a simple oneness, just like Hashem is simple oneness. And yet, when we want to describe the soul, we talk about its essence being intellect and emotions. Even though they are not the very essence of the soul, they are extremely close to the essence of the soul. So the intellect are the three intellectual faculties of Chachma Bina Da'as, which is Chabad. And the intellectual faculty the, and the emotional faculties are seven, and they are chesed, gevur, teferas, netzach, haid, malchus. Okay, we're not going to go into them. This is the three intellectual faculties, the seven emotional faculties. This make up the essence of the soul for all practical purposes. Then we have the way the soul expresses itself. And in Kabbalistic terminology, we call these the levushim, the garments of the soul. What are the garments of the soul? They are thought speech, and action. Garments can be put on and removed at will. The same thing with thought, speech, and action. A person can say something, and then they could say something totally the opposite. How could you say something totally the opposite? Because it's words. I could say this. I could say that. It's not actually who I am. It's the way I express myself. So when it comes to the garments of the soul, The way that the garments are expressed, thought and speech, even thought is expressed through letters, through words. So people speak in a certain language, they think in a certain language. When it comes to garments of the soul, the way that the garments are expressed, the garments of thought and speech are through the medium of letters. Letters are containers, letters are carriers. When it comes to the essence of the soul, to intellect and emotion, to understanding and feeling, there are no letters. We can say somebody speaks in Hebrew. We can say somebody speaks in English. We can say they think in French. We can say they think in Japanese but we are not going to say that they understand in English or in Hebrew. We are not going to say that they love in English or in Hebrew. When it comes to the pure emotion, to the pure intellect, at that space, there are no letters. Even though you'll process your thought in a language, when you get it, it's not in a language. It's a pre-lingual state that's in the essence of the soul. You might articulate your love for somebody in a language, but the feeling of love is pre-lingual. Letters don't exist there. When it comes to the essence of the soul, letters don't exist. When it comes to thought, speech, 
That's when letters are initially formed. That's when letters have an existence. Okay. The Alta Rebbe now introduces an analogy which traces the early evolution of an idea or a desire from the moment that it first occurs in one's mind and heart. At that stage, the idea or desire is formless, not yet having the shape or form of words. It is pure desire, pure idea. The desire of an English-speaking person, for example, feels no different from that of a Hebrew speaker. It is only when it reaches the stage of applied or practical thought that the idea or desire takes on the form of what are called letters of thought, which may be later expressed in speech. Now, the letters of thought and speech are, of course, seminally contained in the original idea or desire. It is only that at that point, their existence is completely nullified. It is as though these letters were non-existent. Only the idea or desire is felt. Okay, so we have a principle, a Kabbalistic principle. Whenever something emerges from a source, we have to say that it is there in the source. If it comes from somewhere, then it has to be there. So when we're saying that there are no letters in intellect and emotion, it's not that they're not there. It's just that they don't exist over there. They have to be there, and I'll tell you why. Intellect and emotion are what produces the words for the idea or the emotion or the feeling. When you want to express love, it's because you had a feeling of love. That's what gave you the words to express the love. When you want to express an idea, it's because you understood an idea. And that's what gives you the words to express the idea. If the words are coming from your understanding, if the words are coming from your feeling, that means that they exist there. The only thing is that when they exist in the source, they have no existence. They're there, but they don't exist. Okay? So when we're saying that there are no words in the essence of the soul, they're coming from the essence of the soul, but when they're in the essence of the soul, they have no existence. While they're in their source, they don't exist. They're there, but they don't exist. Something of an analogy for this would be from a Hasidic discourse by the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. And he describes a person who has an idea very well in their mind. Imagine you know something inside out very, very well. There he described somebody who knows a, a concept in the Talmud. It's like he has it in his locked up in his chest. It's like he has it in his back pocket. Okay, but everybody has something that they know very, very well inside out that if you're going to sit them down for a conversation, if it's their favorite topic, suddenly they'll be speaking about it, even if they didn't plan for that discussion. Okay, now, a person who has this idea so well worked out in their mind, not always are they thinking of this idea, not always are they speaking about this idea. Sometimes they're just sitting there and doing nothing. Sometimes they're speaking or thinking about something else. So when they're not expressing it, the idea does not have letters. It is not being carried through or manifest by letters. Are you going to say that when they're not thinking about it and when they're not speaking about it, it doesn't exist in their mind? No, 
It exists in their mind, even with the letters, but there are no letters. It's as if they don't exist. Now, stated in the terms which the Alter Rebbe employs, the idea and desire are described as part of the ten soul powers, of which three, Chabad, belong to the intellect, and seven, the Midot, comprise one's emotional range. These ten faculties are the source and root of thought and speech, for one thinks and speaks of that which he understands and feels. These faculties are called the substance and essence of the soul. In comparison with thought and speech, which are merely the soul's garments, meaning modes of external expression. To relate the analogy to the point under discussion, every created being derives its existence and life from divine speech, meaning the letters of God's command that created it. Since nothing is outside of God, this creative speech and the beings created thereby are contained within God in the same way as the words one speaks were previously contained within the desire of the heart. All of creation is therefore nullified before God, just as the letters of speech are nullified within the idea or desire which is their source, where only the desire is felt, not the letters. Okay, look at all of creation right now. What does David HaMelech write in Tehillim? Bidvar Hashem Shemayim Na'asu. By the word of God, the heavens were created. Our sages teach us in Pirkei Avot, Ba'asara Ma'amaris Nevra'ailam. The world was created with 10 utterances. What is all of creation? All of creation is but a word, but a word of Hashem. Where are we right now? You know where we are. We are sitting within the very essence of Hashem. When a word, when a letter is within its essence, does it have an existence? It doesn't have an existence. All there is, is the essence. So we're going to say the world was created. What's the difference between our speech and Hashem's speech? Our speech starts out as a prelingual desire or prelingual understanding, then takes on the form of thought and speech and emerges and leaves us. Nothing ever emerges or leaves from Hashem. There is nothing outside of Him. There is no space devoid of Him. Hashem is everywhere. He pervades all space. There is no space devoid of him. That means that as we are, words, expressions, utterances of Hashem, all of creation is utterance of Hashem within the essence. Does it have an existence? It doesn't have an existence. When something comes from its source, while it's still within its source, there is nothing. It is non-existent. It's there, but it doesn't exist. All created beings are nullified before God, just as the letters of speech and thought are nullified within their source and root, meaning the soul's substance and essence, meaning its ten faculties, Chachma, Bina, and Da'at, and the Midot. In which there are no letters as yet, prior to their being clothed in the garment of thought, as has been explained at length in chapters 20 and 21. See there. 
So here we go. Here he spells it out. Was the world created? Yeah, the world was created by the word of Hashem. Does a word have any value or significance, any existence while it's still within its source? No, there is no existence of a word while it's still within its source. Nothing ever leaves its source. We are all within Hashem. And therefore, yes, he created the world, but there is no other existence besides for him. And Alter was now going to give us a physical example. So you see why this analogy is different than the drop in the ocean analogy. Because the drop in the ocean analogy is, we get it. It's very easy to understand. You can see it physically. There's a drop and there's an ocean. But ultimately, the ocean is made up of many drops. When we're talking about a word that emerges from the essence of the soul, we're not going to say that the essence is made up of many words. The essence is, is, is indescribable. The essence is totally beyond the words that come from it. It produces the words, but it's not made up of the words. And while the words and while the words are within the essence, they are absolutely non-existent. And that's that's all of creation. The words of Hashem, as they are within their essence, absolutely non-existent. Now, as we move through these ideas and we come to realize how Hashem fills all space and pervades everything, and He's everywhere, it literally suffuses our soul with joy. But as the altar says, you can have to focus and you're gonna have to picture in your mind. Picture in your mind means that you take the time to make it so real, so visual, as if you are looking at it, staring at it right in front of you. So it takes time, it takes energy, but it's an exercise in coming to this profound realization of the closeness of Hashem. Elsewhere, this idea is further illustrated by an analogy from a physical phenomenon. The nullification of the sun's radiance and light within its source, the celestial orb of the sun. Okay, so here's a physical analogy. And the Rebbe points out that we have a physical analogy for this divine idea. What we're doing is a very Hasidic exercise, and that is allowing the beyond the world divine energy to shine even through physical creation. So we're going to look at physical creations and come to realize a divine idea that totally transcends the world. So let's look at the sun. Let's look at the light of the sun. Let's look at the light of the sun as it is within the sun. Shigam sham meir umispashet vadai zivai vairei. For surely its radiance and light Glow and spread forth thereto. More strongly, in fact, than they spread forth and glow in the space of the universe, being close to its source, the light is more intense. So we're going to look at the sun and the light of the sun. Is there light within the sun? Of course there's light within the sun. Whenever you move closer to a source of light, not only is there light in the sun, there must be stronger, more powerful light in the sun. Think about a light that's shining from far. The more you walk closer and closer to the light, what happens? The light gets brighter and brighter and brighter. If you're going to get all the way into the sun itself, the light must be within the sun. Ella, shesham hu batel b'metzios b'mekare u'k'ilu enoi enoi b'metzios klal. But there, 
Within the sun, its very existence is nullified within that of its source. It is as though the light were absolutely non-existent. All that is seen within the sun is the sun itself, not the light, which is merely a product, an offshoot of the sun. So here we have it. When we look at the sun, yes, there's the sun, the physical orbit of the sun. There is the light that comes from the sun. When we look at the sun, are we going to say, here's the sun and its light? No. All there is is the sun. There's nothing else besides the sun. But if light comes from the sun, is it within the sun? Of course, we learned that principle. Whenever something emerges from the source, it obviously is there within the source. And yet, even though it's even stronger and more powerful within its source, it doesn't exist there. It's as though it doesn't exist because while it's within its source, it has no separate existence. When does the light of the sun begin to have an existence? Once it emerges and it leaves the sun, it takes on the existence, the character of light. Within the sun, it's like it doesn't exist. Is it there? Yes, it's there, but it doesn't exist. The thing with us, the thing with all of creation is we've never emerged from our source. Nothing ever leaves Hashem. And because all of creation is still within Hashem, is it there? It's there, but utterly non-existent. This will be better understood in terms of the saying, of what good is a candle in the daylight? This is an expression from the Talmud. Shraga betihara mayahane. What use is a candle in the daylight? Is it any useful? Look, you're going to go outside, you're going to take a candle. It's the middle of the day. The shining, sun is shining. Is it going to help you? Going to see any better? Naturally, the candle is no less luminous by day than by night. But because its light is overwhelmed by the far greater brightness of daylight, it no longer fulfills its function of illumination. So the same light that it gives at night when it's actually very, very helpful is the same light that it gives during the day. But no use. It's as if it doesn't exist. At this point, it ceases to exist as a luminary. The same is true of the sun's rays as they are within the sun. They're brighter within the sun, but as if they don't exist when they are within the source. Exactly so, figuratively speaking, is the very existence of the world and everything in it nullified in relation to its source which is the light of the Ein Sof, as is explained there at length. There is Shar HaYechud Ve'amuna. It's the second section of the Tanya. There the Altar it's called the Gate of Faith and Unity. The Altar takes a long time to explain the idea of Hashem's oneness, that there's really nothing else besides Hashem. So as all of these analogies, what are the analogies? The analogy of the letters as they exist within their source and intellect and emotion. The analogy of the light as it exists within its source, within the sun. Are they there? They're there, but they do not exist. Remember, Hashem fills all space and everything is of no value or significance in front of him. And that means because he fulfills all space, there is no separate existence. Everything remains within its source and there is but one reality, and that is Hashem. And I'm going to tell you a story about the Baal Shem Tev. The Baal Shem was once approached by somebody who said, I don't understand. What's the matter with your followers? They're always happy. Are they insane? And he said, let me give you an analogy. 
So there was once a very talented musician that was unknown and was in the marketplace, and he started to play his instrument. His music was so moving, so joyful, so buoyant that people started to gather around him. And before you knew it, everybody was dancing. Now, walking by the marketplace was a deaf man. And while he usually sees the hustle and bustle of the marketplace, instead he sees something that looks like insanity. People are dancing. And he's wondering, what happened? Has the world gone mad? And the answer is no, the world has not gone mad. You just can't hear what's going on. And he turned to the man and he said the same thing with the Hasidim. The Hasidim are in tune to the essence of the divine singing forth from all of creation. Have they gone mad? No, just because somebody can't hear the music, they're not going to stop dancing. They have not gone mad. They are in tune to the essence of creation. So let me sum up what we said until now. And that is, you need an extra boost of joy. You're feeling tired. You're feeling weary. You're feeling jaded. You need that extra oomph joy in serving Hashem. You want to illuminate your soul. You want to purify it. Take this idea to mind. What's the idea? The idea of Hashem's true unity. Not only is Hashem the only God, of course he's the only God, but he is the only reality. And you're going to say, what do you mean he's the only reality? How could there be? I see a world. One second. Take these two concepts together. Concept number one, Hashem fills all space, even this physical world. Concept number two, nothing has any significance in front of him. Well, you put those two together, you know what you get? Only one existence. The existence of Hashem. Because everything is of no value compared to him. And everything exists within him. And therefore, there is but one existence, and that is Hashem. And next class, the Alter Rebbe is going to bring this idea home for us. So it literally makes our hearts sing, brings it so home, so real, to make us totally understand that there's nothing else besides Hashem, and this should transform our soul with incredible joy. So I'm opening up now for questions and discussion.